standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll read this morning verse 1 through verse 6 as we continue on in our series in this letter of Paul to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 1. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. And But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's call upon Him for help. Almighty God, You have given us Your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also is an example of a godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of His redeeming work and to follow in His steps of His most holy life. This we ask through Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. In preparation for this morning's sermon, last week I did the painful thing of watching a sort of documentary, I guess you'd call it, called Religulous. Religulous. Produced and narrated by comedian Bill Meyer. And if you know anything about Meyer or the movie, you realize that it's really not all that funny. It's really a hit piece on religion. And basically what he did was run around and primarily interviewed Christians and attempted to attack Christianity and show how irrational it is. But basically uh, his thesis was that religious people are basically good people uh, who believe really irrational things. And because they believe these really irrational things like, oh, God becoming incarnate and... Uh, the virgin birth and miracles and things like that, that they're inherently dangerous people and that we have to warn our country and basically anybody who will listen against religious people because they're dangerous and they are the cause of war and unnecessary violence. Now it ties into what I'm thinking about here this morning, sort of in an indirect way, because one of the things that emerged... Uh, through this film as he interviewed all of these Christians uh, was the fact that most of the Christians who he spoke to were so uh, doctrinally illiterate and so ill-informed and so totally distorted the truth in the way they explained it to him uh, that they not only did not give a good account of the Christian faith but in fact uh, they made Christianity appear foolish. Because they were ignorant. I don't think that that was merely related to that film, however. I think that there is a basic 
widespread ignorance of doctrine in the church today. And uh, my suspicion is, and I think it's probably well confirmed, that one of the reasons why is because of the misunderstanding of the phrase at the end of verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And you see what is too often drawn from that, the conclusion that too often emerges, is this sort of easy, uh, this easy division between there's doctrine, and that's for pointy-headed academic intellectual types who are stuffy, and then there's practice for those of us who really just want to be like Jesus. Now, what I want you to know is that a complete misunderstanding of that phrase, and we'll expound that, but what I want us to notice here is what the Apostle Paul does here in verse 1. He says something very fascinating. It is directed to the situation of things being sacrificed to idols. He's taken on the whole problem of how do these uh, Christians in Corinth interact with a very pagan, idolatrous society. And, and what he says to them in verse 1 is fascinating and then unfolded over the course of a few verses here. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. Now bear in mind, that is the context of that statement, knowledge makes arrogant. We'll expound what he means by that. But one of the things I want us to see here is that the Apostle Paul indicates, by the way he says that, that the church wasn't ignorant. In fact, that this church had been well taught and well catechized and was well versed in the fundamental, elementary, basic, significant truths of the Christian faith. And you can see some of those truths that are unfolded here and referred to in verse 4 and following. You come back to verse 4, you see that Paul has taken up again this theme of things sacrificed to idols. And at the very end of that verse... He uh, points to the doctrine of the Trinity and of monotheism. There is no God but one. And in verse 6 we see there is but one God, the Father, by whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And so, compressed within the space of just a few short verses, Paul refers to the doctrine of the Trinity. He refers to Christology. He refers to creation, and he also pokes a hole in idolatry. But what I want to point out is that three of the six divisions of systematic theology are quickly alluded to and referred to here. And what he says about all of that is that the Christians who are in Corinth, they all know about these things. They weren't ignorant. They were well taught and well instructed in the faith. This morning we want to get into that. What is it that the Apostle Paul says they all know? Now this is important, and this is a sidelight now. We've established the fact that Paul says they know certain things, very fundamental, very significant doctrinal truths. How does that tie into the whole context? Well, this morning we don't have time to go on into 7 and following. We're going to do that next week, and I want to make sure we save plenty of time to deal with the issues there. But... Here's roughly the problem. We'll touch on it a couple of times in this morning's message where relevant. But roughly the problem is this. These Christians who all know these basic truths understand them and apply them at different levels. It's very clear from verse 7. 
He says, not all men have this knowledge. That refers to the Trinity, Christology, creation, and so forth. He's not saying there that there's actually some Christians who don't know. That would be a contradiction of what he's just said. Better to understand that to mean, as he goes on to explain, that they don't know how to apply it in the same way. And the problem is, is that the more mature Christians who knew how to apply this theology were engaging in certain practices that when the weaker brethren saw it, it caused them to stumble. Caused them to bruise their conscience. And so we'll have to come back and deal with that next week. That's the problem he's attacking. But first of all, what I want us to see here are the things that the Apostle Paul says all of the Christians in Corinth know. And as I've already pointed out here, first of all, the doctrine that they know, first of all, includes the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, we know that there is one God in verse 4. And then in verse 6, he says, we know that there is one God. And then he says at the end of verse 6, there is one Lord. You see, repeatedly he emphasizes this point in monotheism, the fact that there is one divine being, which is by itself, an enormously significant truth over against the concept of idolatry and the belief in many gods and the polytheism which was rampant throughout the pagan Mediterranean region. But you got the basic truth. That's a basic biblical truth. That is a truth that is founded in special revelation. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, the creed that all of the children of Abraham recited is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was a basic statement of faith that all of uh, the Jewish people from, from, uh, from the time of Abraham and Moses and, and on down from them, all of them knew and all of them recited and all of them believed it. As you come into the New Testament, you have the more full and complete uh, revelation of God in light of great redemptive historical events such as the incarnation of the Son. We see the Bible more clearly unfolds the fact that within this one God there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But again, stamped across the pages of the New Testament is this unequivocal, emphatic statement of the fact that God is one. Romans 3.30, Paul says there is one God. Galatians 3.20, Paul Paul says, God is one. Ephesians 4, 6 says, there is but one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul says, God is one. James 2, 19 says, you believe that God is one? Fine, the devils do too. They believe and triple. It's all across the New Testament. God is one. But it's also across the New Testament that though God is one, He exists in three persons. And you see the first person of the Trinity here in verse 6. Right after he said there is but one God, he alludes to the first person, the Father. The Father. And he clearly distinguishes him so it's clear that he is a distinct person within the Godhead. Because he distinguishes him by the fact that creation is from him in terms of its source. And then he distinguishes... uh, the Father from the Son at the end of verse 6 when he says, One Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have the Father as a distinct person of the Trinity, and then he refers, as I already said, to uh, the Son of God, where he says, uh, There is one Lord Jesus Christ. And by putting one in front of Lord there, he's emphasizing uh, the unity of the Godhead, drawing attention to monotheism, 
over against polytheism, making it clear that Jesus Christ is distinct from the Father, yet also is God. You say, well, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, he's already been spoken of throughout uh, 1 Corinthians, most notably chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, we haven't received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God. But, but you see here what Paul just sort of offhandedly says here. We all know. All the Christians in Corinth knew about the Trinity. They were all instructed in the Trinity. They were all aware of the fact that there were three separate individual persons of the Trinity possessed of self-conscious. They were all aware that each of the persons possessed the whole divine essence. They were all aware of the fact that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had their own peculiar characteristics, yet at the same time were mysterious one God. The Trinity is a foundational biblical truth that every Christian must know. Now I know it wasn't put into creedal uh, statement until the 4th century. But that doesn't mean that the church wasn't confessing the doctrine of the Trinity because here the Apostle Paul makes it plain that all of the Christians in Corinth had that knowledge. They had the basic biblical knowledge that there were three persons, yet one God, and it was all a great mystery. The Father was not the Son, the Son was not the Spirit, the Spirit was not the Father. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Paul says, we all know it. It's a foundational Christian truth. Secondly, here he refers to Christology. Particularly, he refers to the two natures within the person of Christ. You'll notice here that he refers to him in verse 6 as one Lord. Now, Lord was a title that was used often in the Greek language in reference to the basic pagan deities that were out there. But throughout the New Testament, we see that the apostles repeatedly call Jesus Lord. And one of the most important passages, and I want you to turn there with me, uh, where Paul uses this title. I say it's important because it really locks down. By the way, it's Philippians 2, verse 11. It really locks down for us what was meant by it. If people want to debate and say, Lord's just a title, referring to the dignity of Jesus Christ as some cults and sects uh, on the fringes, well, they're not Christian, but they try to use the Bible as their base of revelation. Uh, They may deny that Jesus... By the way, I just had one knocking on my door yesterday. Uh, Yeah. At any rate, if they want to deny it, it's very difficult to get around Ephesians 2.11 here. Well, well, Paul says uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, what he has just done is he has applied Isaiah 45.23 to Jesus Christ. Back up to verse 10, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now, I, I wonder if you have one of those Bibles that has uh, text references in there. Because if you do, you'll notice verse 10, the text reference to every knee will bow is Isaiah 45, 23. What you'll also notice there 
if you flip back to Isaiah 45.23 is in, it says to me that is clearly Jehovah clearly God says to me every knee will bow now what Paul has done there is he has applied Isaiah 45.23 to Jesus Christ and then he has explained what it means in verse 11. He says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is so clear there in that verse. You cannot get around that verse. I don't care how many tricks you like to play with Bible verses. You can't get around this verse. Paul calls Jesus Christ Lord And in such a way that it's unmistakable that he's saying he's divine. He is the God who revealed himself as Jehovah in the Old Testament. Now coming back to 1 Corinthians 8, it's very clear that the apostle here is referring to the divine nature of Christ. He says there is one Lord. He's divine, but now notice he gets into his human nature when he calls him Jesus Christ. Jesus is The name which refers to his human nature, the name that the angel instructed Joseph to give to Christ upon his birth, meaning that he will save his people from his sin, it alludes to the fact that he has a human nature, that he had an earthly mother, that he had a physical address, that he had a body like men, that he was like us in every way, sin accepted. Now that's some profound truth. These are enormous theological guns that the Apostle Paul pulls out of the closet to deal with the broader issue of idolatry. But he says here, all you people know this. Imagine to walk into your average church today and quiz the members of the congregation in the doctrines of of Trinity and Christology. And the doctrine of Christ and the two natures, how they are distinct, yet never separated, united, but never mixed together. He says, these are things that we all know. The next thing that he says we all know is the doctrine of creation. You see that again in verse 6. He says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. All things would have to be taken in the most broadest uh, sense here of everything in the universe, both material and immaterial. Every component part of reality, atoms, particles, cells, logic, everything we see, everything we can't see, all the things that science will one day discover, or maybe never will be able to because it's so profound. But it's everything in this universe, Paul says, it's all from God. He is the source. But then notice at the end of verse 6, he also says that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was involved in creation when he says, by whom are all things? In other words, he was saying that the Son is the agent or the mediator of creation. By whom are all things? John puts it a little bit more comprehensively in John's Gospel, the first chapter, he says, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now see, that's a little bit more comprehensive. It doesn't say that all things came through. He said said that there's nothing that exists in this earth that didn't come through the Son. So, the Son here is the agent, the Father is the source, 
Paul says, here again speaking of creation, and we exist for Him. What Paul has just said, because God is the Creator, he has just said this is a truth that is a component part of the doctrine of creation. That means that you exist for God. Now, he doesn't deal with that much more here, but it's interesting if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, at the end of his discussion about idolatry, he says there, whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything for the glory of God. You see how foundational this truth of God being the creator of all things is for this particular question of idolatry. Because idols, after all, are simply the constructs of men's minds and men's hands. And what Paul is saying is that they are things that have been created by God. So there's no truth to the claim that they're divine. But he says, because of that, all of your life then, because God is creator, all of your life is to be directed to the service and the worship and the glory of God. Now we need to pause on that for a second, because that is and was a revolutionary statement in the ancient world. That was a revolutionary statement in the ancient world, that the worshiper's life would be bound up in the exclusive, exclusive worship and service of one God. They didn't know anything like that. First of all, that would have been considered completely impious to neglect the worship of other gods. If you did not worship the full range of the gods that were there, you would have been considered utterly impious for failing to give the reverence and the worship and service that was due to particular deity. But not only that, you would have been considered extremely impractical. You see, a person's life in the ancient world was bound up with offering the proper sacrifices to the particular God at the right time in order to manipulate reality in just the right way so things went well for them. They lived a life of divided loyalties. Your devotion was divvied up among the various idols and gods that they thought were there. What Paul says here to these Christians, which flows out of this doctrine of creation, is you don't live a divided existence. Christians are not to lead a a divided existence. Their life is to be bound up with the exclusive love, devotion, service, and worship of this one God who has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the last truth that you find here, tucked in at the very end of verse 6, and we don't have to tread long on it, but we need to note it. Right after it says there's one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, Paul says, and we exist through Him. You see, Paul is not just repeating himself as if he said, well, uh, all created things come through Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm going to say this one more time. And you exist, uh, you, you exist through him too. Oh, what he's referring to there is, is, is redemption. 
says, we exist through Him. He's referring to new creation and recreation. He's saying that Christ has made you new in Him. It's a reference to the sovereignty of Christ being our Savior. Through Him you exist. Through Him you have been recreated. Through Him you participate in new creation. Through Him your sins are forgiven. Through Him you have been reconciled to God. Through Him you are justified. Through Him you are quickened and made alive. Now imagine that. In the space of just a few verses, Paul covers now the Trinity, Christology, Soteriology, that is the doctrine of redemption, and creation. All this tells me, before we move on to our next point, and we see why Paul is bringing all this up, all this tells me is that there's no excuse for Christians to be doctrinally ignorant. There's no excuse for Christians not to have minds that are furnished with the truth. It's not a mark of intellectualism or elitism or pride or any other thing that Christians would have knowledge of the basic fundamental truths of biblical revelation. These are things that must be known. These are things that must be believed. These are things that you must have some basic information in. And these are things you must absolutely be convicted of that are true. Back to the film Religulous, which is ridiculous. There's one line in there that really sort of sticks out like a sore thumb, or at least it to me was uh, his claim to be a doubter. His claim to be apparently humble. He said that he preached the gospel of I don't know and stood on the corner with doubt. You see, in talking to these people who believed in whatever religious faith they did, at the end of the day, he just couldn't come stand alongside of them because they stood on another corner of the street. His corner of the street was marked off real clearly. It was this black hole, this gray area, where all there is is just doubt. There's questions and questions and questions and no answers at all. Just doubt. How noble it is. So apparently humble to say, I don't know. Yeah, God could be there. Maybe He's not. Maybe there's some mysterious, majestic, impersonal force in nature that's responsible for all... We can't, we can't know these things. See? It's arrogance cloaked in humility. Arrogance cloaked in humility. You cannot waver. You cannot doubt. You cannot sit on the fence. You cannot pretend that there's a street corner designated just for you. The kind of noble, uh, humble people who just, just don't know. So they'd rather not have convictions. Well, that's to deny the truth. That's to deny God. That's to decide against God. And I'm afraid that that mentality is sweeping through the church. Lots of anecdotal evidence we can find of 
complete doctrinal ignorance in the church today. But a study recently released by Varna had some startling insights. 60% of self-identified Christians don't believe that Satan exists. Nearly 50% of self-identified Christians could not make a firm, convicted stand on the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. There goes salvation. And the clear majority of self-identified Christians do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a distinct divine person. There goes the Holy Trinity. Why? Especially since the Apostle Paul says here, we all have knowledge. But we'll have to come back to that. But it's a major problem. It's not okay for us to pretend that there aren't significant foundational truths that we all must believe, we all must be informed in, and that we all must be convicted about, and that we must all embrace to be true. And if we don't, there's no salvation. Why does Paul say all of this? Well, go back to verse 4 now. And this is where it ties into the broader context, and we're going to need subsequent verses, which are not ours to expound this week, but uh, we'll do it next week. But here in verse 4, coming back to the issue of things sacrificed to idols, he said, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Circling back to the truth of of idolatry and things uh, sacrificed to idols, the Apostle Paul says, we all know this too, that there's no such thing as an idol. There are so-called gods, he says, whether in heaven or in earth, they're so-called, but they're not real. Why does he know that? Why does he assume they all know that? Well, the answer is because they know about the doctrine of the Trinity. And they know about Christology. And they know about creation. And they know, based upon those fundamental theological truths revealed in the Bible, idols cannot exist. There's no real God there that is being worshipped because there's only one God. They all accepted that, but, but the problem was this. Again, if you come down to verse 7, he says, not all men have this knowledge. And again, we can't undo what the apostle has said. He said, they all have it. Here's the problem. There were some brothers in the church who considered themselves strong and were able, when they, they ate this meat offered to idols they were able to look at it and just think of it as a barbecue. They had no problem. They, 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 they could think it through. There's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the creator of all things. These idols can't be. And so they had no problem 
uh, taking a piece of, uh, of meat off the, off the, off the spit and, and eating it. It was, it was no problem to them. But then there were these weaker brothers there who knew the doctrine of Trinity, who knew Christology, who knew the doctrine of creation, yet when they, they saw that, they couldn't help but sort of reverting back in, in their conscience at some level to to thinking that they were worshipping an idol when they did that. See, they couldn't separate these things. It wasn't because they didn't have the truth. It wasn't because they weren't informed. It wasn't because they weren't catechized. It was because they couldn't make that separation. Now that's the issue in the passage, and so come back to verse 1 and we'll wind down our message this morning. We'll deal with the admonitions that are in verses 1 and 2 and how they relate to this whole problem of meat sacrifice to idols. He says, um, under his admonitions, first of all, knowledge is to lead to edification. Knowledge is to lead to edification. You see, in view of this problem of, of the stronger Christian setting this example, and by that example, sort of drawing in the weaker uh, conscience brothers into that practice of eating the meat sacrificed to idols, and through that causing them to, to stumble and to sin and to violate their conscience. Uh, Paul says, you are using your knowledge, that knowledge that these idols don't really exist, that aren't really real, you're using your knowledge to bring harm to your brother. That's not loving. You see, the strong were able to pretend that it was just a barbecue, or that it was just dinner, that it was just socializing. They could compartmentalize. But the weak, as Paul says in verse 7, being accustomed to the idols until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. They couldn't compartmentalize and they felt that pressure when they saw the more mature brothers in Christ eating and they felt pressure to, to be grown up Christians. They felt like they were being pressured into a level of spiritual maturity they weren't at and, and when they did that, they fell and they stumbled and they made a mess out of their lives. They couldn't separate. They couldn't separate these things. And you know what Paul does in view of that? He puts a load of blame on the shoulders of the strong Christian. And he says, that's loveless. You're using your knowledge to tear down your brother. The point that emerges out of that part there in verse 1, the very end, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What Paul is saying is that you have to join love to knowledge. If the pursuit of the knowledge is not about learning how to love God and your neighbor, you have the wrong inclination and desire for learning. He said, if, if you're pursuing knowledge, yet not for the purpose of being a blessing, not for the purpose to edify, he said that loveless knowledge is sinful. It's hurting your brother. It's dangerous to the church. It says, let love be for the purpose. Let knowledge 
be for the purpose of knowing how to love and edify your brother. The second thing here that emerges out of verse 1 and then verse 2 is that learning and knowledge is not for fueling pride. He said knowledge makes arrogant in verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogant. The colorful picture that stands behind this word arrogant. Yeah, I grew up in the country, so maybe this analogy won't work for you. But I don't know if you've ever seen it next to a swamp or an irrigation ditch. A big old frog. And sometimes little country frogs in the swamp can swell up enormously. Just look like somebody had taken some helium and just pumped them up so they're about ready to explode. They're swollen. That is exactly the image here behind this word arrogant. Knowledge makes arrogant. Literally swollen up. Proud. And you can see that pride here uh, in verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything. Now you can't pick it up in English, but in Greek it's clear. It's in the perfect tense. And it has this idea. If anyone thinks he has this complete, comprehensive, thorough knowledge. If somebody thinks he's a great theologian. If you think you know, Paul says... You don't know anything. You see, the issue here is arrogance. The use of knowledge to try to intimidate, to harm, or simply divorce from love altogether and just learn for the sake of being a know-it-all. He says, you don't know anything. You haven't even begun to know as you should know. I thought about those words. I couldn't help but think about Job 38. A lot of depressing stuff in Job. But it gets really exciting from 38 on. When God comes down to Job in the midst of the whirlwind and starts straightening everything out. Talking to Job about all the things that were going on behind the scenes that he really couldn't know. And some of the things he just couldn't tell Job because God is God and Job is Job. But he stands there in front of Job in the whirlwind and he starts interrogating with great passion. And he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, who enclosed the sea with doors when it was bursting? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you lift up your voice so that the clouds give rain? Have you ever sent forth lightning? For a whole chapter, God just peppers Job with one question after another about the mysteries of the universe and about of everything in the world. And the answer is, Job doesn't know anything as he ought. Paul is rebuking the kind of knowledge here that learns to be a show-off, that learns to get all the test questions right never employs it properly in the service of love and edification and building up others. He reproves selfish learners. 
own view that we have to come back and deal with this problem. Why is it that this verse is so wrongly used and how do we straighten it out? Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. In view of what we said, I think there's a number of things we can say. It certainly does not mean that knowledge is really not that good for you and what really matters is just being loving like Jesus. As if we could make that kind of easy distinction. So Jesus really doesn't want us to know anything. Jesus just wants us to love. I was reading a critique last week by an evangelical author of evangelicals. So it's not me beating up on people. Um, and, and here's what he said about this problem. And these are his words critiquing the broader evangelical church thinking that they don't really need knowledge, just practice. He says, here's the theory, that we're to be spiritual and not academic, since learning brings forth knowledge, and knowledge brings forth arrogance. I don't know if you ever heard this or not, but I've heard people tell me that this is sort of the experience they had when they began to come to Calvinism, and they began to explain the kinds of things that they were actually finding in the Bible. Uh, people will tell them, don't get into that Calvinism stuff. Don't start talking about predestination. Don't, don't, don't trouble me with limited atonement. Don't talk to me about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Because you know what happens to people when they get into those doctrines, to those deeper things? They don't love people anymore. They're not concerned about evangelism anymore. They're just proud people. Don't get into that Calvinism stuff. Well, as a Calvinist speaking to Calvinists, I understand how that happens sometimes. I understand how that actually does happen sometimes. When you've had nothing but doctrine that you could drink through a straw, and you get a hold of some doctrine that you need a fork and a steak knife to eat, you're thrilled. And you get absorbed with this doctrine. And and you enjoy reading. It's stimulating. It's nourishing to the soul. But sometimes it can go past that. To almost a form of idolatry. Of now just having a smug, intellectual, just the facts kind of Christianity. And it's all about... Living Christianity in your head. I'm concerned that that does happen. As a Calvinist speaking to Calvinists, I'm concerned that that does happen. I'm concerned that it happens, that people come to these great truths and maybe they've been listening to them on the internet or the radio or some high-profile preacher or teacher who who seems to be talking about heavy and important and substantive things, and somehow it turns out that Christianity does just end up being an intellectual affair. That's a problem. That's why when I talk to people about the Reformed faith, I'll just talk to them briefly and set out some of the basics, and then I'll say, you know what? You really can't get this stuff until you come to church. 
You really cannot get this stuff out of a book. What you have to do is learn this within the context of worship and within the context of the body of Christ where there's a whole range of people next to believers from all walks of life and all different spiritual levels joined together in love and common commitment to God. There is very great truth to this, that these enormous truths need to be contemplated and studied and learned and lived within the context of the body of Christ. And if you separate those things, and you become an individualist and an island to yourself who's just absorbed with uh, the next latest greatest book, and your Christianity is all private and individualistic and in your head and intellectual, separated from the body of Christ and the worship of God, it can happen that that knowledge will make you arrogant and will end up being very dangerous to you spiritually. But you know what? Paul's talking to Christians. Paul's talking to people who live in a church Paul is talking about people who are worshiping together as a body when he says these things. That's the context for understanding this statement here. He says, we all know. They all know it because they've been taught it. They all know it because they've been catechized in it. What he is saying to these Christians is, it's fine that you know, and you need to know, because that knowledge is what is going to direct your life. It's essential. You have to know that those idols are nothing. Otherwise, you'll be sucked into soul-killing practices and religion. But here's what you have to do with that knowledge. Here is your aim. You need to learn in order to love God and your neighbor. You need to learn in humility. You need to learn so that you know how to edify and to build up others. That's what we need. That's what Paul says the Corinthian church needs. And I'm saying here this morning in conclusion, that's what we need is a church that is galvanized around the truth as it is in Christ. A church that knows the truth. A church that loves the truth. And a church that uses the truth. Together, communally, as a body, in such a way that it guides us. It guides us into action that is consistent with that truth. It reinforces each other that we don't abandon this faith, but rather that we live it out in obedience and commitment to Christ and out of love for God. That's what Paul means here when he says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Let's pray.